0: Hi, my name is Patricia Martins-Marcus, and you are listening to New Books in Science and Technology Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Greta LaFleur about her new book, The Natural History of Sexuality in America, out by Johns Hopkins Press. And Professor LaFleur is Associate Professor of American Studies, and she is also Director of Graduate Studies in the Program in Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Yale University. Um, The Natural History of Sexuality in America is an excellent and I think extremely rich book that comes with a very beautiful Walton Ford cover (laughs) that I think will really speak to a very vast and versatile versatile audience from scholars of race and sexuality to those interested in science studies, um, gender and sexuality, queer studies, as well as histories of the body and and colonialism more broadly. This book um, has a little bit of everything for everyone. As a historian of the body and of science myself, who works on the 18th century, uh, this book definitely had a lot for me. And I think it very effectively historicizes categories that we often take for granted, like sex, race, vice, or habit, and shows us not only their temporal contingency, but by inviting us to delve into the strangeness of early modern ontologies and epistemologies, it ultimately creates the possibility of different futures as well. Um, these are futures of greater intersectional solidarity in which we are invited to think about the collective and move past the dominance of the individual, the subjective, and the biopoliticized body. Professor LeFleur, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for writing this book. <laughs> well, thank you so
1: much. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I just want to offer a really quick, kind of pedantic, but I think still important, um, correction to what you just said, which is just that my book, the title is The Natural History of Sexuality in Early America. Um, Just because I don't want, (laughs) I just don't want people in, you know, uh, expecting, you know, broadly American to be disappointed or surprised by the 18th century content.
0: That's right. Uh, Mm. But it's in early America. Uh, That is the title, the full title. Yeah. Um, So, if you wouldn't mind, uh, the first question, as it is usual in the channel, is about you and mm-hmm. how you came into this field, into this specific project. And um additionally, I always think it's very interesting to hear about the process of transforming the dissertation into a book.
1: Oh yeah, well, it was it was a long one. Um so uh I guess I guess the way that I became um an early Americanist, just a quick a quick little um anecdote about that is, uh, I had actually thought that I had wanted to be a medievalist. And so I started a master's degree at the University of Toronto, um, which is a sort of um, medieval studies hotspot, thinking that that would be the kind of work that I would be doing. um, And um, realized pretty quickly, um, with people asking me questions like, So how good is your Latin? And like, you know, uh, like, how well do you know old Icelandic (laughs) that I was probably not really cut out for it? So um, I ended up taking a bunch of classes in 19th and 19th century American studies, early American studies, sexuality studies. And um, that really kind of solidified uh, my sort of my, you know, the field, uh, my decision about what field I would end up in. And um, initially, when this started, you know, fast forward at this point to, you know, I think it, at this point it was like five, five years later, six years later, when I was beginning my dissertation, um, I uh, initially thought this was going to be kind of a history of psychology project because, you know, the book did grow out of the dissertation. Although, um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, the uh, the book pretty much is entirely rewritten. I think there's about twenty pages in the um, in the book that. Um, have any overlap with the dissertation, although a lot of the sources are the same, and a lot of the questions are the same. Um but the answer is very different. Um so yeah, it started as a history of psychology project, and it kind of started as a um, revolution to civil war project where I wanted to kind of ask questions about the emergence of a like the idea. it was kind of an intellectual history of interiority, an intellectual history of um, uh, how people came to think about themselves as having an inside and part of it was kind of motivated by um the reading that i had been doing um in in some of foucault's work and um but also a lot of you know early 19th century work on the history of psychology so benjamin rush john haslam um writers like that and um and you know i kept coming over and over again to um discussions of desire and inclination and in this interesting way it, it sort of um the more I looked at those primary sources, the more I ended up thinking about sex and sexuality. And, you know, I'd always been interested in those questions. Um, You know, I did a graduate certificate in women, gender and sexuality studies. I'm still, you know, I, 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 uh, while I'm not appointed in women, gender and sexuality studies in my current job at Yale, I, nonetheless, you know, I, I I was the director of graduate studies for WGSS this year. So, you know, these questions of, um, about like, uh, like that are sort of central to queer studies, feminist studies, um, have always been really central to me. But um, yeah, so I had I, been really inspired by um, reading a lot of Foucault, but um, I really thought it was going to be a history psychology project. And the more I worked on it, the more I just found that all my sources were sort of like, uh, kind of constellated around discussions of sex. And that was how it became the project that it became. And, and so I started looking, I was like, well, okay, where did, Um, the sense, where did the idea of sexuality come from? You know, where did, you know, we, we toss this word around in such a glib, like way that, you know, we, we all kind of assume that we know what we mean when we say it. And um, so I remember the the dissertation really started when I was trying to find the first use of the word sexual um, uh, in the sort of Atlantic print archive, the Anglophone Atlantic print archive. Um, that meant the you know the, the same thing that the word means for us today, and that was that was kind of um, where the book uh, got kicked off, or where the dissertation got t- kicked off. Um, and yeah, I mean, so that was kind of how it began. I guess I'll stop there. And if you want to ask further questions about it, I'll tell you. Uh,
0: so, how was that that process of confronting the need to entirely rewrite the whole thing and and to use the same materials, but having to Think about them and conceptualize them, perhaps frame them in a different way.
1: Well, I personally found it extremely freeing. Um, I like to. This is this is mostly a joke. What I'm about to say, um, but uh, but I always joke that I like to, um, especially as someone who you know teaches and um, and and works and lives uh, in queer and trans studies. I like to divide the world into like neat binaries that I create myself. So you know, <laughs> some, of the binaries, some of the binaries that I um, create are like. Uh, people who prefer writing with pens versus people who prefer writing with pencils. Um, <laughs> people whose resting state is single versus people whose resting state is coupled. Um, and so one of the other binaries are people who are revisers and people who are rewriters. And so mm. I'm, I'm a rewriter. I hate... I, I'm getting better at revision. It's, it's sort of coming to me slowly as a skill. And of course, you have to learn how to revise if you're going to turn a dissertation <laughs> into a book. But I've always just been a rewriter, like throw it out, write it again. Um, so it actually in a way, I thought it was really freeing. And, you know, it really answered a, a quagmire that I was faced with when I was trying to revise a dissertation into a book is because I, I kept, as I was trying to embark upon the project of re, um, revising it, I just found that none of my primary texts were supporting my argument. So I'd made this argument about the relationship between sex and interiority. In a way, um, I remember one of my dissertation advisors at the time sort of characterized my project as, um, oh, you're just doing like basically Foucault's history of sexuality, but like doing it for early America, doing it for the other side of the pond and thinking about the specifically colonial subtext of, um, of, of these materials and like whether that changes that story or not. And so I was really thinking about the relationship between sex and desire and interiority. And the more, um, the more I tried to sort of force that argument, the more it just, it just didn't work. And I was really just hitting a wall And then I spent a semester, I had um, a bunch of little research fellowships. So like I had a research fellowship at the John Carter Brown Library at Brown and Mass Historical Society, a bunch of different archives. So I was spending like two months here, two months there. Um, So I was able to take a semester off, uh, a semester of leave from my job in order to do this research. Um, And uh, in that time, I also um, had just torn my Achilles tendon. So I had just had surgery. And so I wasn't really able to go out and do very much. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I was just reading tons and tons and tons of critical theory at the same time. And I read Mel Chen's book, Animacies. And it, there was something about reading that book that really flipped for me um, the sort of set of questions that I'd been asking about my archive. And I realized that my framing um, was not about, my set of questions were not sort of organized around the question of interiority, but actually around the question of exteriority, about like the, the influence of the external world. And the way that, um, the way that, that, uh, it it wasn't that the book I was applying the framework of the book to my book, um, but rather that reading that book allowed me to see what all these 18th century texts were saying about the way that that sexual behavior was understood in that moment. And, And so many of them were using this kind of like environmental logic that really relied on, um, a sort of analysis of external influence. So environment, um, you know, the heat of the sun, climate, um, the relative quality of the air, food people were eating, governments um, that, were, that people were uh, you know, being governed by, um, architecture they inhabited, their social milieu. They really understood these factors as bearing a really serious influence on, um, on, an, on sexual behavior. And once I sort of realized that, the book came together. It wasn't that it came together really quickly. It took me a long time to rewrite it. Um, but it just, I, it came together better, you know what I mean? Like it's, right. in, in a way, you know, and it's funny cause it made the, I was literally making the opposite argument that I made in my dissertation. But insofar as, you know, most opposites are related, um, it was sort <laughs> of, it was like I'd found the wrong text, but it was making the wrong argument about them. So once I kind of found the right argument, it, it actually came together really organically and, um, pretty quickly, uh, relative to, to, to sort of the struggling I'd been doing beforehand.
0: Wow, that I think that's really interesting. That turn, that shift from interiority to the environment, mm-hmm. which is sort of what the one of the protagonists of the book is really this notion of of, of the environment and the outside world and um, of the body. So let's let's go a little bit into that great. Uh, and think more about um, humoralism, which you discuss with great detail. And this environmental idea of the body, this body that is porous and in content, um, content, constant, I should say, dialogue with the external world. So this framework serves many purposes and I think um, that to great effect it really invites the reader to denaturalize our present day common sense and knowledge categories about race, sexuality uh, and bodies more, more broadly and how these are interlinked in fact. Yeah, uh, so in that sense I think it would be extremely interesting to hear a little bit more about the importance of natural history on our narratives oh, yeah. on the history of race and sexuality mm-hmm. and specifically about what you call the sexual politics of racialization.
1: Yeah, um well that's a great question and also definitely the question at the center of the book. So um I'll I'll start with a little bit of framing about like what about what what was sort of um, on my mind as I was thinking about as I was developing the project. So one of the things once I started, well, let me just tell you actually how I got to natural history. So when I came back to the project and realized that I was actually thinking about um, environmental questions. So you know the main question of the book is you know how did people think about um, and make sense of sexual behavior, their own and that of people around them in an era before the sort of um, emergence or, you know, onset or availability of um, modern vocabularies for sex and desire. So if we think today about sex as being something that um, we almost have like a property like relationship to, or we imagine us, us as ourselves as having a kind of property relationship too, um, wherein our sexuality is something that is like lives in our body. It's sort of, um, unique to us. It's individuated. It's, um, it emanates from us. You know, it's not something we draw from the outside world. It like, it, you know, emerges organically from, um, from the sort of depths of our sort of bodies and psyches. And we all, it also has this very specific geography. Like we imagine, for example, that our genitals, um, are sort of uh, like hot spots of sexuality, whereas, for example, maybe our hands or our knees or something else, you know, aren't. Um, so if, if that's the sort of modern sense of sexuality, and that, that, that and also just to add one thing to that, which is that um, this modern sense also sort of stipulates that uh, sexuality has a sort of um, expressive feature, you know, that it tells this kind of truth about, about ourselves and about our experience um, in a highly individuated way, which, of course, is Foucault's story about it. Um, if that's the modern sense and that that was not available, you know, in the period that I'm looking at in the book, which is basically the late um sixteen hundreds through the early nineteen hundreds, then how did people make sense of sex? Um and so one of the things that um that I also realized when I was coming back to the book and, and doing revisions after I'd um submitted the dissertation Um, is that I realized I'd missed this major, major, major site for the explicit and consistent representation of sexual behavior. And that was natural historical texts. And I think I'd avoided them earlier. I certainly knew that they were there because, you know, I'd already had a chapter that sort of thought a lot about natural history in the dissertation. Um, But I think I'd kind of avoided them because they are so racist. You know, I mean, they're ugly. You know, there's nothing I mean, it's not that um mm-hmm. it's not that I don't think that there are things that are very interesting about natural history but it's really hard to talk about the sexual or the story that they tell about sexuality because it's a really ugly story and it's basically the story of um atlantic like colonial racism you know it's it's right. it's a, it's mm-hmm. a, it's it's um sexuality and sexual behavior being weaponized um in the service of articulating a kind of profundity of racial difference that is always um, being organized into a hierarchy where, you know, white people are at the top and everyone else is underneath right. them. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I just didn't really know what to – it's not that I didn't know what to do with that or it's not that I didn't see it. I just sort of – I think I was just kind of being avoidant, honestly. I was like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. Um, <laughs> and I was like, you know, I can tell this story about the relationship between sexuality and race differently. But then when I came back to it, I actually thought, you know what, if this is actually the place – and, I, and, you know, I'd done a lot more reading when I was coming back to, um, th- to the dissertation to sort of start revising it into mm-hmm. a book. And I also had realized that a, that most um, historians of sexuality had not actually treated natural history. So so at that point, something I had avoided um, was increasingly sort of appearing to me as kind of a huge intellectual gap too. And I thought, you know, all right, I have to actually deal with this archive. And, um, and yeah, and so, you know, th- these texts, uh, you know, use... Um, they use sexual behavior as evidence um, in, you know, because natural history was so, so, so concerned. I mean, I would say the primary concern of natural history, especially when it comes to humans, is understanding um, and articulating um, racial distinctions and what, what they right. call human yeah. variety. Um, and so, um, you know, insofar as natural history is basically a story, it's, it's, it's race science, um, or it's like a, you know, it's the, 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 mm-hmm. um, the discipline in which race science, um, was like kind of largely situated in the 18th century Atlantic and Anglophone world. Um, you you see people using, um, the sexual behavior of, um, you know, you see Europeans using the sexual behavior or citing the sexual behavior of people from other parts of the world, not European parts of the world of not white peoples, um, to sort of assert, um, the sort of realness of the sort of difference between blackness and whiteness. Um, and, uh, or, or between Christianness and non-Christianness. Um, and yeah. And and I think that one of the things I realized when I was looking at that archive, I was, I was like, and I, I was like, why haven't, when I was trying to deal with the question of why hadn't historians of sexuality thought about this archive, because it's right there. It is the most explicit and consistent represent or site for the representation of sexual behavior that I've come across in 18th century print culture, Anglophone print culture, and um, and I realized that the, or I, I, my thesis about why people had sort of missed this or not dealt with it was in part because the understanding of the body at the center of natural historical um, inquiry is a really different vision of the body than, the, than um, the body that tends to be at the center of a lot of um, inquiries that are sort of developed by historians of sexuality. Historians of sexuality have often gone back to this period and kind of thought with the body that we kind of know today, which is like a closed system. I always think of Ed, Ed, um, ed Cohen's book, uh, which is on biopolitics um, uh, which is about sort of the way that like how bodies um, it's called a body worth defending is his book I mean how bodies mm-hmm. sort of became uh, understood as these kind of closed systems that needed to de- like defend themselves um, from you know from the, the the outside world and you know he dates this to the advent of anatomical science and other types of human sciences that were um you know nineteenth century sciences. And um, so I, I felt like the historians of sexuality that I was sort of um, trying to build on or the, whose work I was trying to build on had actually brought that body to the 18th century to their questions about the 18th century right. um, and, and mm-hmm. its history of sexuality. And so, you know, once I looked at the way that the body was understood in that moment, and you really, really, really see it in race science, which is an environmental body, um, a so-called quote-unquote porous envelope Um a body that's sort of eminently vulnerable to uh, the sort of uh, pressures of its environs of all kinds, um, you realize that like, this is a changeable body what Kitty Childs calls a quote unquote transformable body. And um, you know, and there's been so much great work in histor in the history of race on this, you know, I think about Kim Hall's work, which, you know, she was one of the very early influences on my work. um, Nussbaum too. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, they really, they really, um, like sort of center that, um, that humoral body, the body that sort of changes with, with intake and outtake. And once I sort of realized that that was the body at the center of these texts, I realized I needed to change my questions. And that was really right. how the project mm-hmm. got it started. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, um, that, that's, uh, at least for me in my work is also very it was a very important insight to to come to to that conclusion as well that we are not talking about the same body, bodies were very different and they yeah. they were pliable, and uh, understanding the effects. Not only of the environment um, on them, but of the of how those environments were fundamentally racialized. Yes. So, so here I, I'd like you to to sort of bring um, that that racial element of of the of the environment and of geography in, into this uh, discussion about natural history and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and at a certain point you talk about how writing about human variety in natural history rendered sexual behavior visible to mm-hmm. 18th century inquiries about human difference. Yeah. Um, you also mention uh, at a certain point in, in, the, in, I believe, chapter one, that this also, this, const- this rethinking of the body also constitutes uh, an invitation for us to think about the sorts of archives that we have used and that we need to use Mm-hmm. in the future to cater to these stories and i i just like you to 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 speak a bit more about this
1: yeah so i think um i think the other thing um the other thing that when i was what uh, that i was sort of struggling with when i was trying to understand why historians of sexuality hadn't looked at these texts the other thing that i sort of came to is that um you know there there've been wide um like wide and and very legitimate criticisms of queer theory. And I, I think of queer theory as, as in many ways growing out of studies in the history of sexuality, like early works by Alan Bray, John Boswell, people like that. Um, other, so, so the history of sexuality and queer theory more generally has been really critiqued for um, or early versions of it was really critiqued um, righteously. So I think for its inattention to um, questions surrounding race and, and specifically for, for its real, just um, like kind of uh, um, like sole focus on whiteness and, and also on men like cis men. Um, and so, and, and, and this, is, this is really, this has changed a lot since I started writing this project, but also, you know, early histories of race hadn't really thought as much about gender and sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things I was also trying to do in the book is kind of bring those um, those sorts of, those intellectual genealogies together, not because, not not to force them, but to actually show um, people in my field in the 18th century, and the 18th century studies, how deeply mutually imbricated they are, you know? And um, oh wait, I just I think I just lost the question. What was what was sorry, you remind me.
0: I apologize. It's like seven. 70- oh, it was just about that coupling of, yes. of race and sexuality and, and the racial racialization of space and geography. And the racialization of space. Yeah. Oh
1: yes. And so so a great example of this. And a, you know really easy example that'll be familiar to like anyone who works or has read it all in the early modern period or 18th century. Is thinking about um, the idea of the, of the zones, right? The torrid zones, the temperate zones, and the frigid zones. So um, European uh, geographers had kind of separated the Earth, and this was this was this, this was a, like kind of loose inheritance from Galenic and Hippocratic um, medicine, which is you know much older, ancient at this point. Um, and they'd kind of separated the Earth into three zones. So there's the um, the the uh, uh, torrid zones, which was are the zones closest to the equator, and these are actually on maps, like people get very specific about, um, where they are. I think it's like, I think the torrid zones are like from the Tropic of Capricorn to the Tropic of Cancer, I think. Um, and then there's the temperate zones, which are kind of like, um, the bands in the sort of, uh, like the middle bands of the sort of, um, like the top of the globe and the bottom of the globe. And then there's the frigid zones, which are kind of the poles in their, their environs. And, um, and there are these real stories, these, like, very, like, heavily racialized stories about these spaces that also um, kind of told these quiet sexual stories, stories about sexual behavior alongside them. So, and, you know, there were, there were stories about humor. So, you know, if you were, if you lived at the equator, um, you would likely be, uh, you know, well, it, and also I want to just bracket all of this by saying that if you look for any sort of consistency in 18th century natural historical stories... Right. About, yeah. <laughs> about, about these zones, like you will not find any. Katie Childs no. gave me this amazing advice when she was, she read my manuscript when it was sort of, um, my book manuscript when it was uh, in progress. And she was like, she told me, she, she was like, Greta, you know, it's, it really seems like you're trying to um, find some sort of internal coherence. Uh, in 18th century natural historical thought, and specifically race science, and she's like, "Just stop trying. It is not there." <laughs> and it was really just like one of the best pieces of advice um, anyone sort, could sort of give me, because you know, you have like eight million people telling eight million different stories, really about right. About, um, um,
0: and it's a point you bring out quite quite often, and I personally found it very freeing because, yeah, consistency incoherence is the story. I think it more than is. Anything else.
1: And this is the one, one of the big takeaways, I mean, just as a side note, um, from my work on, you know, like the 18th century, I mean, like, like, like our own moment, you know, if you asked 50 people to tell you, like, you know, to sort of characterize the sort of political climate of you know the United States today, for example, you'd get 50 different answers, you know, and you might, you might have answers that would clump in, you know, four or five different places, but you'd still have really different answers. Um, and that was, that was very much the same for the 18th century. Um, yeah. And so like, I, you know, one of the things that, um, so if you think about the torrid zones to go back to the question about racialized environments, um, you know, if you think about the, you know, the, the torrid zones being, um, being places where you're going to, ha- where, where, uh, the environment makes people more, um, more amative. So like kind of more lusty, if you, it makes mm-hmm. them more hot tempered, it makes them more indolent because it's hot. So they don't want to um, move their bodies as much. And, you know, the, the, frigid zones being, uh, uh, places where people were supposedly, um, less amative because, you know, the, the, it sort of chilled their humors. Um, and so they weren't as, um, as passionate about their, their loved ones, whether it be, you know, uh, like wives and husbands or partners or, you know, or children or friends. Um, if you look at that, you know, those stories, there's really intense stories about race in those. And usually, usually, um, the The stories about the the temperate torrid and frigid zones also came with a sort of story about skin color and hair texture and morphology um, and uh, they're also telling stories about sex you know're they're, they're like and they use these um, they use sort of stories about amativeness or lustiness or lack of lustiness or um, or you know respect for women or lack of respect for women or despotism of you know in marriage um they use uh these these sort of um putative and uh, largely largely completely made up uh characteristics to assert um the sort of realness of the difference between these different zones you know and so not only do people be, sort of end up wearing the kind of patina of the zone that they're from um but then you also have the zones themselves taking on these kind of like literally these geographies taking on these kind of like racialized and sexualized characteristics um, and th- th- that were understood to kind of, um, you know, bear bear a kind of influence on people who pass through them. So this is like, if you think about um, stories, for example, about, uh, about um, uh, like plantation owners, for example, who um, are European, they're say like a, a like a, a man from England moves to say Jamaica to um, to open a plantation or to start a plantation um you know there's 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 a there's real stories about this quote unquote degenerating um uh, quality of the climate there you know and also if you, th- there's also um stories about the degenerating quality of um or qualities that incur in um living in for example a slave society um you know that 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 slavery uh um degrades both people you know people who are both enslaved themselves and right. also people mm-hmm. who are um who are using um and and reaping reaping um economic benefit from the um unremunerated labor labor of enslaved people. So yeah, you know, so it the, that's what I was kind of trying to point to too because we tell these stories about race that kind of in a way like these stories about sexuality are um are often sort of uh relying on theories of the ways that we understand race today, right? Like we really understand race today in a kind of um I'm forgetting the word for it, but like a skin color based way, right? It's like there's like in a mm-hmm. like a chromatist kind of way, but it wasn't just. And of course, there were ideas about there were chromatist ideas circulating in the 18th century, but there were also a lot of other stories too. And right. um, mm-hmm. and I think paying attention to the again the humoral body at the center of um, at the center of a lot of these theories um, and the way that the that that humor has also affected your racial racial constitution. You know, the Comte de Buffon very famously said that like. Um, that was someone who was black, who was, um, born at like at the equator, um, could be moved to the North pole. And in 10 generations, um, you know, his family or, you know, his descendants would be white and vice versa, you know, race was also understood as transformable.
0: Right. These bodies were always pliable and subject to transformation. And, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something that is, uh, it's really important to, to take into account. Um so sort of building on the on that idea of the geographies uh second chapter juxtaposes that to to this notion of the complexion of sodomy yeah. and so how sodomy becomes not only added to this geography but also to to um to islamic identities mm-hmm. and and to that form of racialization in particular how did you come to that uh, to, to these sources and to to, to this particular conclusion
1: well i'm trying to i'm trying to remember where how it was that i ended up <laughs> i ended up in the in, in that archive um it was that was one of the hardest chapters um to write in the book it was it was one of it was a hard dissertation chapter to write it was the last dissertation chapter i wrote um and it was um it was when I rewrote it, it was one of the most difficult chapters to rewrite, but actually it's one of the chapters that I'm sort of the happiest with now. Um, So I think if I'm remembering correctly, I think I came to the materials at the center of that chapter because I was trying to figure out um, where you see, well, actually let me back up for one second, which is just to say that Mm -hmm. the other thing that my book is kind of concerned with is um, the way that uh, natural historical theories of, um, racial differences and, and and sexual behavior and the way that they're kind of imbricated, which are typically understood to be quote unquote like high or elite ideas. You know, these are, these are texts that um, had expensive bindings that had very like small print runs that were really expensive. And, you know, these are also on top of the costliness of these ty- types of texts. We're also talking about, Um, a place and time, um, you know, which is in in the case of my book, British colonial North America, so the 18th century, where most people couldn't read, you know, so, um, or for most of the century, the majority of people couldn't read. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and one of the things I'm trying to sort of ask about in this book is like, well, did these texts or did the ideas in these texts rather, like some of these ideas about, um, about racial difference and and sexual um, uh, diversity, did they circulate beyond uh, beyond the kind of immediate elite purview of these texts? And you know, there's been a lot of work that sort of demonstrated that natural historical um, ideas about race did. And and so with that, I was kind of like, you know, insofar as all these texts about race are also telling these stories about sex, I, I I kind of suspected that also some of these ideas about um, sex were circulating as well in much uh, less elite, kind of more um, like cheaply printed, um, like kind of salacious, sensational. Um, texts that were uh, for like a broad range of readers, including elite readers, but also um, kind of just readers who were, you know, like I always tell my students that a lot of the texts that I look at in, my, um, in the book are the equivalent of like um, of, uh, tabloids. You know, they were the equivalent of tabloid magazines of our own time. So um, so yeah, so I was looking for, I was looking for explicit discussions of sodomy. And I think that's, I'm pretty sure that that's where, how I ended up at some of those, those um, texts. And so I ended up talking about Barbary Captivity Narratives well, which were stories of um Christian sailors usually from um uh, from North America or from England, but it, certainly there was a, a tradition of Barbary captivity ra- um writing in um France and I think also Spain as well, who would um in the course of their voyages because you know shipping was the big way that products were getting across the ocean at this point or were getting from place to place um uh, at least in the context of the the um colonial and metropolitan uh, relationships. Um, who would end up in the course of their their trips across the ocean? I'm um, getting taken captive by Barbary corsairs. So, Barbary corsairs were um, were uh, effectively pirates who were employed by the city states that were that kind of rimmed the um, the nor- the coast of the African the northern coast of the African continent. So, a lot of them um, sort of faced out into the Mediterranean, Tunis, Tripoli, Algiers, um, Salé, uh, places like that. And so these enormously powerful city states, many of which had sort of uh, ties to the Ottoman Empire, which in the, in the moment was immensely po- like powerful and sort of you know gaining power every day, and it was really scary for a lot of uh, a lot of Western Europe. Um, and so these Barbary corsairs would take the ships. So the ships themselves were incredibly value- valuable. They take the goods on the ships. So all the products that um, say England was having shipped back to sort of gird their economy. Um, the corsairs would take. They'd take all the um, all the sailors, every Christian on board, they'd take uh, they'd take captive and they'd sell them on the sort of small but um, but still sort of robust uh, Islamic slave market, which which sort of flourished in these city states. It was really different from the African slave market or the slave trade Um it, uh, you know, in the case of Barbary Corsairs, um, people could be um, could be freed. Like people could be manumitted by basically paying ransom. Um, but I, I'm always just sort of interested. I love this sort of history of these corsairs because um, it's just such an amazing model. You know, you had, you had people sort of um, you had corsairs sacking towns in Ireland and New Brunswick. I mean, they were just like all over the ocean, and they were immensely good at what they did. Um anyway but what are the big fears that you see um people express and sailors you know actually were some of the most uh, literate um sort of like uh in terms of the sailors had some of the highest literacy rates of the moment because you know they were like trapped on boats for years at a time and they had nothing better to do a lot of times um and so they would teach each other to read and write we see all these sailors expressing fears of getting sodomized as uh, if they if they're taken captive um by barbary by, by barbary corsairs and sold on this the slave market and, um, of course, this taps into like a very old, um, kind of like proto-Islamophobic, uh, um, association of Islam with sodomy that you see, um, between like sort of Protestants, um, who are kind of aiming their concern at, uh, at Islam. But you also see, I mean, the sort of sodomy is kind of used as this Insult that kind of just glosses some sort of like understanding of fundamental difference. It's also funny to say fundamental right. because you know it's it's it was a word in the 18th century that people would use to refer to the anus. Um, so sodomy is fun, is fundamental, quite literally, <laughs> but um, yeah, so you'd see, um, so you know, you'd have Protestants calling Catholics sodomitical. I'm actually doing a little bit of work on that right now for my mm-hmm. new project. You'd see, um, people Quakers were described as sodomitical, every you know, and if someone if Protestants didn't like someone, they often just sort of, um, you know, uh, impugned their, <laughs> impugned <laughs> them by suggesting that they might be a sodomite. And so that was definitely true um, of the uh, of the Islamic world. And interestingly, you know, one of the cool things about writing that chapter was I got to do um, some, like a kind of dive into the history of that region written by, for example, historians of like Algeria, you know, and mm-hmm. it was actually interesting that like, um, that, 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 you know sexual violence was also a tool of war in that period so right. it's not that yeah. it's not that you know sodomizing never happened it's just that um the sort of association of um sodomy with a particular um religion in this case islam was not really was not really the sort of real explanation for it um but yeah but you know it's it's interesting cuz you see um you see the sort of uh the way that sodomy also becomes geographical um so you know like you know the the city of sodom right. is a place mm-hmm. in the levant you know and and you really see uh christians in that era um really sort of uh like drawing uh connections between people who lived in that region um and and who were thus largely um also, you know, muslim and um and the sort of practice of sodom uh, or some practice of sodomy and it's just i, I don't know it's, it's it's another way that um that environment and geography in particular gets racialized and sexualized
0: right yeah yeah, it was. I think I, I think it was a very successful chapter. I think it, it presented that case really seamlessly, and it was very interesting to read. So, oh, moving fun. on to the to the next chapter, um, you here I think the idea of habit takes particular mm-hmm. prominence, and it's really important. And you, and it's an analytic that you theorize in a very intentional manner. Mm-hmm. Um, for uh, for the 18th century inhabitants of early America that you study, habit was a form of destiny in a way. So I, I, I wanted you to unpack a little bit more for us how habit was fed into early theories of criminality and what was the role of sexuality and race vis-a-vis habit.
1: Yes. So habit... Um habit is a really thick word. That was one of, that was probably the hardest, that chapter, chapter three, um, is, was probably the hardest chapter to write. Um, it was, it just dogged me. And I really had this sense, even when I was writing the dissertation that the habit chapter was the most important chapter and I couldn't really tell why. And now I kind of understand why. And I think, the, I think what the habit chapter, um, kind of showed me, um, is that, is that as much as, as much as I want I'm telling a story about the external world, about the environmental world and, the way that um, that there's a kind of environmental logic that informs the way that people understand their behavior and specifically their sexual behavior. That there's always this kind of double edge of there's like a like a weird like chicken and egg question about like you know what came is it is it the internal that's in influencing the external the external that's influencing the internal and what I kind of realized in that chapter was that um, that there's that. People in the 18th century really understood like both the, the sort of uh, internal and individual inclination alongside, um, you know, environmental influence to, to sort of um, do the work of shaping, um, shaping, you know, behavioral inclinations and, um, and many other things as well. But um, yeah, so but, but I think habit was also one of the things when I was writing the dissertation that really got me thinking about the external um, because habit was a really big concern for all sorts of figures in eighteenth century North America or eighteenth century colonial north america so um so a habit is a is a really big term in the race sen- science of the day um habit you know in the eighteenth century refers to both um both behaviors so like your actual uh, routines like what you're doing every day um you know how you're cooking um how you're setting up your house, stuff like that but it also refers to um to to um uh, to what you wear, right. Your habit is, um, like, you know, we will still say that nuns have a habit, right. They have like that, like there's a specific uniform that, that a lot of nuns wear. Um, and it is called their habit. So, um, so I, very, um, like sort of succinctly says that habit refers to both custom and costume. And I think that's a nice way of thinking about, um, habit. And, and, you know, of course, dress was really important um, for uh, the race science of the 18th century Atlantic world. Um, it was a big indicator of um, of like where someone was from and also their relative level of quote unquote civilization. Um, and you know you'll have uh, you'll have these kinds of tables. And I, I think I think I'm trying to remember whether I reproduced that one in my book or not. Um, where it's also funny when you write a book and you can't remember what images are in it. But um, <laughs> at one point it was going to go in, and I don't know if it stayed. But where there's like a table, and um, and Roxanne Wheeler also reproduces this in her book, and it says habits of the different peoples of the world. And it says, all right, here's like a Malagasy habit. Here's a European habit. Here's an American meaning in in the parlance of the day, um, uh, like a Native American, um, you know, habit. And, And it shows basically the same two figures over and over and over again, wearing different clothing. So, like, clothing becomes this really important racial marker for people. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, in that th- that chapter, I'm thinking a lot about the way that habit shows up in um, in execution narratives. And execution narratives was basic were basically like the true crime of the day. So, any listeners who like true crime, um, like they would have really been into these um, in the 18th century. So they would generally um, sort of tell the story of someone who was condemned usually to death. I mean, almost almost exclusively to death um, for a crime. And would um, they would tell, the, they would tell the, the story of the crime itself. Um, and often, you know, as the sort of 18th century progressed, less so in the beginning, but much more so at the end, they would sort of tell they would offer this like little case study of the um the convicted person um to sort of explain it would be the sort of explanatory framework that like kind of offers a little story or like narrative for how the person became you know became bad or became uh, the per- this person that would do this this bad thing which was usually you know in the north american colonies the only capital crimes were um were uh murder rape and treason so you know they did something if they're being executed Um, official, uh, under like official, the auspices of sort of official, uh, like, uh, you know, law, Uh, because of course, I'm not talking about, for example, lynching, um, like regular lynching, I guess this is state lynching, Uh, you know, that's, that's different. But, um, but yeah, so there were, there were only three things that people tended to be executed for. And um, so they'd offer these little stories of like how people came to be the sort of like, quote, unquote, like, you know, bad person that they were, or criminal that they were. And a lot of these execution sermons, so sermons were um, given the, the morning of the execution and, you know, executions were huge sort of like social events. You know, um, I forget, I think it's, I think it's cotton mather, but it might've been increased mather. I'm mixing up father and son right now, but um, describes mm-hmm. having to climb over the shoulders of people in the, um, uh, of like people in the, in the church, because the church was so packed to get to the pulpit in order to give the execution sermon, on um on one of the days he was he was giving um a sermon and you know people would uh you know buy accounts of the execution i mean it's it's pretty macabre um today um and it's you know also to my mind is a really important sort of piece of the history of um both like pro and, and anti-death penalty uh sort of movements mm-hmm. in the united states but um but yeah so um So these were big sort of popular um, events and they would get these, these sort of popular reports written after them and people would read them and really sort of consume them. But usually there were stories about like early bad habits that were offered as these kind of explanatory, um, explanatory uh, sort of uh, vehicles um, through which the sort of bad behavior of the quote unquote criminal was explained. And so um, I look at a lot of different examples in that chapter, but um, in that chapter, I do think in particular about this one um, case of this person who was um, convicted for rape. And he was um, a, a black man named Joseph Mountain who had never been um, enslaved, um, who had left for England for 20 years and come back to the United States um, and um, was convicted of raping a white woman who, incidentally, um, he he's one of the only cases I've ever seen where he contends through the end that he didn't do it. Um, and I think, you know, just because of the sort of, um, the like way, way, way overwrought and overdetermined, um, sort of, uh, racialization of like rape, especially when it involves a black man and a white woman in the United States and British North American colonies. I think, I think we should take seriously the sort of question of, you know, whether he did it or not. Um, and, and, um, and take seriously the question of his, his insistence that he didn't, but, um. But yeah, but like they, you know, people will talk about you know the bad habits that people de- de- like developed when they were young, um, that led to this, you know, that that hardened them, that like sort of hardened their bodies to the positive influence, um, of the world around them that could have reformed them. Um, and you know, actually, my colleague Kyla Schuller wrote this book called The Biopolitics of Feeling, which thinks a lot about these questions of um bodily plasticity. She works a little bit later. Um, she works in the eighteenth mm-hmm. or the nineteenth century. Um, but, but century. if you have a question. Yeah. 19th century. Did I say 18th? Yeah, I meant 19th. Um, and, uh, she, but so if people have questions or interest in that, they should, they should really go read her book. But, um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, so habit is just this kind of interesting, um, mediating force between the inside and the outside world. So if you develop good habits when you're young, um, they can really sort of like mold you and def- like, they can be this almost like this, like uh, defense system, against the, um, moral incursions or amoral incursions of the outside world. Mm -hmm. But if you, you know, develop bad habits when you're young, um, you know, even the best, um, the best sets of influences can't protect you against the sort of ways that these bad habits will pop up. And, um, yeah, I think it really just tells a story about the sort of, um, the way that the, the tension between inter like individual inclination and external influence mm-hmm. was sort of mediated in that moment.
0: Right. And I actually think that it's also the idea of habit can be very generative for for people who are working with medical manuals, as is my case, and for with police with ca- with the case of the police and the institution oh, of the yes. police and what kind of crimes is the police surveilling I think that could be a really generative site for to, to to take your theorization of vice and think through it uh, So in in the next chapter chapter four you speak about the case of Deborah Sampson who also lived under a name uh, Robert Shurtleff. Um yes. and you caution against the seduction of identification and speak rather of opacity. Um, you also mentioned that uh, botany was a sexual science, and you identify it very crucially as as a okay. sexual science that allowed uh, the british uh, the naturalization of British settlement in North America in its transition from colony to nation but also, it allows um that those same framework of colonial knowledge allowed Deborah Sampson or Robert Shurtleff to be understood as a new natural wonder. Uh mm-hmm. I re- I thought this was so interesting. I really wanted you to speak a little bit more about it.
1: Yeah, so just to give like a little setup here. So, um I, that chapter is about um The Female Review, which is a, a book by Herman Mann who um basically wrote a, fictional- a fictionalized memoir. Of Deborah Sampson, um, who also lived as, De- uh, as Robert Shirtless, who had fought, who had um, dressed as a man, and I'll put sort of quotes around that, but who had dressed as a man and um, enlisted in the Continental Army in the sort of latter part of the Revolutionary War, um, and who had gotten injured in the war, and who um, later made a claim for what was called an invalid's pension, which is basically veterans' pay, and. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so Herman Mann wrote this fictionalized memoir of Deborah Sampson because Sampson was campaigning for this invalids pension and had been denied it and, um, was trying to make a claim for it again. And, and, and Sampson actually got a bunch of people on her side, Philip Freneau, who's a big printer in New York. Um, a bunch of kind of like people from the, the the literary world were kind of supporting her cause. So Herman wrote man wrote this book in order to kind of support the cause of Deborah Sampson to kind of um laud her and prop her up as this kind of like early patriot of the the very new at that point republic. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It's actually, a, in my opinion, kind of a really terrible book. It's really boring. Um, people always ask me <laughs> if I want to teach it to my students. And, and I'm always like, no, I would never do that to them. Um, about, but what's interesting about it, like what makes it a kind of bad book is what makes it an interesting book to me, which is about three quarters of the book are about, um, are about just about Samson's. They're just kind of these long uh like d- descriptions of like the natural world like the flora and fauna the cosmos like um and and a lot of it just talks about Deborah Sampson's um sort of education in nature um Sampson interestingly uh was um born into to a very poor family in uh central massachusetts actually my my aunt lives uh like less than 25 miles away from where uh Deborah Sampson was born and um was indentured out as many many children were in that moment um by mm-hmm. her parents to a wealthier family she wasn't sent to school um she basically got took the books that um the kids in the family that she worked for um would bring home and she like learned to read that way She had a little bit of sort of instruction from people in her life, but nothing really formal and so men kind of describes her as this natural genius but who was really inspired by the sort of nature around her and and he also in this in the same sort of um Vain when he's because he's 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 both trying to sort of assert her natural genius in order to sort of make a case for you know her the validity of her invalid's pension claim, but he's also kind of trying to abo- like apologize for her kind of socially and sexually aberrant behavior because she dressed as a man and joined the Continental Army, which you know a lot of other women did the same thing. You know, one of the things you would get mm-hmm. in many places if you signed up for the Continental Army was basically an enlistment benefit so like it would be like a small sum of money that you'd get but you know if you think about the revolutionary war this is a moment where a lot of people were, were really broke you know it was a it was a moment where um poor people in particular were hit pretty hard um and and a lot of people just wanted the the, the cash you know so people would you know do whatever they needed to do enlist and then desert there's actually some um evidence that samson in, initially enlisted and then didn't um and then didn't return, like basically enlisted and then and, and just took the money and ran and then came back and did it again, um, dressed as a man both times. Interestingly, Simpson also lived as a man after the Revolutionary War as well for maybe a year, possibly a little bit more, which is just kind of an interesting detail. And Samson has been sort of taken up by both like sort of feminist um, historiography and also um, queer historiography and also trans historiography as a sort of figure um, who's sort of lauded by all of these camps, actually, my my favorite thing about Samson is that Meryl Streep actually mentioned Samson in a 2016 <laughs> rally in support wow. of Hillary Clinton. It's just sort of a funny. I know. Wow. I was like, like it's just really <laughs> as someone who works on a, this historical period, I'm just like, like. No one else who's like a poor enlisted person who fought in these like basically no-name battles of the Revolutionary War, like nobody, we don't know any of those people's stories except for Deborah Sampson, because of the fact that right. um that um she did this sort of gender, gender um uh, sort of non-normative thing. And so so man's trying to say, you know, um not only is she like she's a real patriot, but he's also like, guys, she's not a freak. You know, other other women did that and ended up um, being accused of being prostitutes Mm -hmm. or, you know, sex workers. They ended up jailed, beaten. Like, it was not something that was, like, heroic in its time. It was something that was, like, embarrassing and, like, outside the pale or beyond the pale of sort of, like, socially um, acceptable behavior for really anyone. So, um, and, and, you know, he also talks in this memoir about – about this sort of passionate like romantic affair that Samson has with the this a uh, woman that the book who just the book refers to as the Baltimore lady. So there's also it kind of <laughs> has this sort of sapphic smack to it. It's kind of like this like lesbian like mm-hmm. um novel. And so um in order to kind of apologize for this, man says things like, you know, it's not her fault. She was merely the product of new sensations and emotions that, um, arose uh-huh. for the first yeah. time ever with the onset of the new nation. He basically attributes, um, her sort of like the, the feeling that spurred her on and to, to act in these particular ways to, um, to like this kind of, uh, new nationalism. And he, and he really asserts that nationalism as something that's kind of derived from the land itself. He literally calls her a product of quote unquote Colombia's soil, and, um, and you wow. know, if you look at mm-hmm. the sort of um, the the um, discussion of the sort of flora and fauna, which in the book, which really echoes al- and, and, and draws from um, a lot of the sort of interest in popular or like popular interest in botany of its moment, which was like the sexual science of botany uh, or a sexual science because uh, the, Lin- the Linnaean system of botany identified plants based on their the relative visibility or invisibility of their pistils and stamens. So this is why it was the sexual science because it's sort of distinguished by, um, between plants based on their sex organs. Um, it was like, you know, botany was very controversial because of this, this sort of the sexualness of its science, but um, but it really became this great metaphor for man when he was discussing Samson. And, um, and th- you know, he really sort of draws on the sort of natural variation, benign variation of the, um, the sort of North American, like, landscape, to assert the sort of um, naturalness of um, it, you know he 's like she 's a wonder of nature, an exception of nature, but she is still natural. He uses the word natural for all the time, and you know this is of course happening um, in the wake of um, rampant 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 um, uh, violence against native people, wars with native communities, um, you know at that point, they were about thirty years away from you know systematized um, Indian removal on the east coast. Um, and you know, and and he really kind of asserts Samson's indigeneity, even as there's like episodes of the book where Samson proves their manliness, like Samson living at that point his shirtless, um, proves um their manliness and their their realness as a sort of patriot by killing a native person. It's the only person we see Samson kill in right. the book. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, I just thought it was kind of um, you know, this is a little bit of a different thing, but when I was working teaching in um but was a prof- my, my first academic job was at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and one of the things I um I ran into there like an idea that I sort of ran into there um was some skepticism about the use of the term transgender by non-binary and you know sort of gen- broadly gender nonconforming people mm-hmm. in um in Honolulu, um who really understood transgender as a sort of neo-imperial ideology that there was a way that like that that it was like. Right organized around the erasure of, um, ways of thinking about, um, of, uh, like being in the, being like in a, in a sort of non-binary gender position, um, in being a sort of middle gender, which, um, exists in, um, uh, like a lot of sort of, um, Native Hawaiian, um, community organization. Um, there's like middle genders that, that people can occupy and people really, um, like sort of, I, I, I saw this talk, um, where uh where um someone was writing about um he, uh, this this film called Kumuhina, which I actually teach in my trans studies class every year um and it's about Akina Wongkalu, who's a community leader um and politician and um in uh Honolulu Honolulu and um yeah it was just um it was the first time I'd kind of encountered that idea cuz you know like transness is sort of associated at least in the sort of east coast american cities that I was I'm coming out with or coming out of as, as, and, and the queer communities in particular as this thing Mm -hmm. that we need to protect as this, as this, um, as this, um, gender experience that, um, is like to this day, you know, largely under attack and that we need to sort of as, as queer people stand in solidarity with, but it was interesting to have this other perspective. And I was like, wow, I actually see the way that that works in this, this, this Deborah Sampson text, you know, um, which, which sounds silly, but it's, it's really there, you know, like there's a way that, um, that Samson and, and specifically Samson's sort of gender um, particularity um, is being sort of asserted as this kind of like new indigenous, newly indigenous, um, like quote unquote species mm-hmm. of American experience, even as, and that simultaneously to um, the sort of murder and, you know, like systematic, um, you know, genocide of Native people. And so it's just, you know, it's, it's, those two things are really ugly to look at side by side, but I think it's really important to look at them side by side
0: very very rich boring novel <laughs> yeah, yeah very <laughs> rich from boring I can tell novel from exactly. your account <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so in, in the in the last chapter and maybe um, let's uh, uh, maybe we can try an exercise of thinking about the last chapter together with the epilogue um, sure. in the last chapter you center around the concept of vice and sort of the the early sciences of sexuality and how those emerges those emerge, and and you discuss cross-dressing narratives, but this time of young unmarried women who who escape lives as sex workers. So prostitution really become really becomes a, a center of attention, um, not only to you but especially to the the reformers and uh, public health officials who are interested in treating. Prostitutes as these discrete yeah. um, classes of population, whilst yes. at the same time sexual behaviour also becomes a more individuated and embodied experience that we sort of discussed mm-hmm. in the beginning. I think this uh, was a, a, dovetails so nicely with sort of with your with your epilogue uh, that is called thinking sex without the subject, because mm-hmm. we have this emergence of these discrete classes of population and even of individuals at a certain point. Uh vis-a-vis the, the sort of the trouble with the subject that you describe all throughout the epilogue. So yeah. I, I sort of wanted you to engage a little bit in that exercise.
1: Yeah, so I mean yeah, that, that's that's a great tension to pull out because I guess in a way I hadn't really seen it. So I mean what I, I guess what I'm sort of tracing in the the fifth chapter, um, which is on anti-vice narratives, so um so these 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 little um cheaply printed um adventure tales that sort of stage the story of um these like sweet sweet white women from the you know from the rural areas of you know the east coast who move to cities looking for work or sometimes they're seduced first they're seduced by local libertines and then they move to cities because they're so ashamed and they don't want to embarrass their parents and then they end up sex workers i mean this is a very familiar story if anyone knows um Oh man, why am I blanking on the, the very classic 18th century, uh, uh, you know, the, the, um, oh no. It'll come to me. Oh, wow. I can't believe I'm, I can't believe I'm, I'm blanking on the name. It always (laughs) happens. Yeah. The Harlots progress, the, the, um, the Rakes progress. Oh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name. Um, but anyway, so it's a very familiar story. You know, the, the sort of young, um, innocent comes from the, comes from the country to the city and is immediately corrupted and descends into sort of sex work, sex work, illness, and death. And um but what's interesting about these these um little adventure stories that do tell that story um is that there there are um a lot of them and I, I look at this set that's set in this that are all set in this area of Boston that people called quote unquote Negro Hill, which was um actually did represent um a really uh, storied and very old um mixed race neighborhood in Boston. actually was the the site of Boston's um biggest black community for a really long time. And um there's actually the the um I'm actually gonna I'm gonna mess up the title. It's like the it's like the Massachusetts African American History Museum. There's still an African American History Museum on Beacon Hill, um, because of the sort of um the, the the oldness of the sort of community that that lived there, um um you know since the the very beginning of the Republic. So anyway, so it's set there, and you know this I this part of the city, it's 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 this sort of space is heavily heavily racialized. It's imagined as as this place where there were um you know brothels and theaters and um you know taverns all these things that are understood to be um to be sort of urban pollutants and you know this was also the era where you see um huge population booms in all of the east coast cities new york providence philadelphia um boston so people um you know there's a kind of alarmism about urban vice in general and so these places these parts of the city and so it's um negro hill in boston um Hard Scrabble in Providence, five points in New York. There's all every city has one or has several, um, and they tend to be areas where there are there is greater sort of um, uh, just sort of uh, contact between um, white people and non-white people. Uh, uh, that and, and this is obviously also something that's really stirring the sort of fears of um, of like white reformers um, in this era. And so um, you know you see these these adventure stories that are kind of telling these like kind of fun. Whimsical, um, exciting stories about these neighborhoods, and and also giving you kind of a salacious peephole into these neighborhoods. But then you also see reform organizations um, who are trying to do anti vice organizing, um, so working against sex work and other types of like what they think of as sort of moral dissipation. Um, using these like popular texts in order to like raise money. Like you see, you see almost like verbatim um, repetition of the language from these adventure stories in. Um, reports of like the you know so like the boston female society for missionary purposes for example this is in the beginning of the 19th century and what's interesting to me in that um in that chapter is just the way that vice becomes um, a collective problem and you see in turn the like early municipal governments like when boston is incorporated as a city in the 1820s you see early municipal governance governments relying on these um, missionary reports which in turn have relied on and literally cited verbatim these adventure stories um, as these mu- municipal governments sort of like uh, develop um, early public health public health sort of campaigns and one of the big things that they try to do is get rid of sex work and get rid of um, basically red light districts and um, and you really see people thinking about sexual vice um, or vice in general but sexual vice in particular as a as a as a as a problem that sort of inheres in groups and that that inheres in spaces and thus is a collective problem. You know, it's it's no longer a sort of sin of the mm-hmm. soul or sort of an individualized problem. It's something that um that uh that that could that could affect anyone um who who enters a particular space or has a particular you know inhabits a particular environment. And so you see cities, um, you know, civil governments, for example, trying to target environments for reform rather than people. So you see. parts of the city, um, like so the north and west end um, of Boston, for example, um, getting policed more heavily. I mean, this is also the early, like the moment of um, the sort of institutionalization or or, um, uh, like municipalization of policing, right? So police forces went from, you know, Simone Brown is excellent on this. So she she knows way more about it than me. Mm -hmm, You see um, police forces going (laughs) from things that are kind of ad hoc uh, to, to things that are formalized and, and, um, sort of embedded in, in city infrastructure. And, um, yeah, so I'm kind of thinking about that, but yeah, you're right. Like, so I go from that, which I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the shift from the individual an individual understanding of like sex of, of sexual behavior as a problem to a kind of collect understanding of sexual behavior as kind of a collective problem that could be targeted not only in people or not even exclusively or, or, or best in people, but in environments to thinking in the epilogue just about the sort of, um, like, yeah, the sort of biopolitics of, um, of, of sexuality and, um, the way that the management of sexuality becomes and, and sexual behavior becomes, um, a sort of key term and key strategy for other types of governance. And, you know, one of the things that I, um, kind of, end up I, I guess I I the epilogue it's funny I, I wrote the epilogue really I mean the first half of the half of the epilogue which is all about um, Malthus and theories of population I wrote very slowly over time the second half of the epilogue I wrote in like three days thinking that I would just you know revise it later when I got to copy edits and then when I got to copy edits both I A, I was sick of working on the book and B I was kind of like you know what I wrote a really weird epilogue. I'm just going to leave it and see what happens. (laughs) You know, I like, I I revised it, but I didn't, I just sort of like left the weird ideas there. Um, So, you know, there's a long, like sort of discussion of, um, of like the relationship between natural history and like early queer theory, for example. Um, And um, yeah, I just, I think I end the book just trying to think about the sort of perils of individuation, like the problem, the problems Mm -hmm. that appear in thinking about sexuality in this kind of individuated way um and, and and the sort of um challenges, um, some some of which are fairly difficult to surmount, I think, um, that that, that sort of brings to um fomenting and um sustaining a politics, um, like a, a politics that's not just about like gay freedom, you know what I mean? It's not just about like making right. sure the HRC mm-hmm. has a lot of money so gay people can join military and get married which in my opinion are like two of the worst possible objectives for queer politics ever um but um but you know that but like that you know that can think in broadly structural ways about you know justice and um liberation that um you know like and what queer politics are which are like yeah there's stories about there's there's stories about sexual freedoms that i absolutely want in there but like you know i also want stories you know i want queer politics to be about you know reproductive justice about anti-racism about you know um toppling like hierarchies that are sort of um shot through and dependent on white supremacy so i mean and i think that individuation right now it's i mean it's something i wrestle with in my teaching and in my writing um and um yeah that's kind of where i end the book but it's funny because like i guess individuation is you know the move away from individuation into the sort of modernity of sexuality, you know, the onset of sexology, um, as I sort of argue in the fifth chapter, I mean, that's kind of the problem. I don't, in a weird way, I don't, um, in a weird way, there's, there's, there's a lot that's also foreclosed by the move to the sort of collective
0: Right. I thought, it was, I thought it was particularly interesting, and correct me if I misunderstood you, but I thought it was interesting when you talk about the perils of the individuated sort of biopolitical hermetic yeah. body, um, yeah. and how you sort of describe how the focus on this category and the study of sexuality through this category, and sexuality and race actually through this category, has sent these two types of inquiry and theorizations that is theorization on race and, se- race and ethnicity and theorization on gender and sexuality into sort of parallel conversations for a long time. Um, I thought that was yeah, a really interesting yeah. point to bring out um, and sort of really generative, especially when thinking about, de- like I mentioned at the beginning, denaturalizing the present and thinking about how the actually the study of the deeper past, longer past can help us Formulate different futures. I thought that was um extremely promising um and useful. Yeah, so I mean, um I think
1: that I think it allows us to see oh go ahead, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt.
0: No, no, go ahead. Oh yeah, I just I think
1: it allows us I, I do think that there's a way that looking at long histories, like long durée histories, allows us to see Things that were um, that maybe don't exist or don't exist in the same way anymore that might be instructive for our own moment. You know, like I think, like there's a way, and I think I'd also say this in the epilogue or, or maybe just in the intro that like there's there's a way in these 18th century texts that I look at that is hard to tell what what we would today call race and sexuality apart from one another. And to me, that really seems like it points to a sort of um, shared set of interests or shared set of fortunes um, around sort of like uh, morphological and um, morphological, um, behavioral, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, like difference or variation you know, like a shared set of of sort of fortunes that I, I I think that could be really instructive for us today. I mean, I think part of me, you know, I, I wrote that epilogue as a jaded as a jaded queer person <laughs> who um has just like been so disappointed by. So I mean, I also you know we're having this conversation on like the eve of like the most corporate pride that I've I've experienced in my entire life, where like every ad is like smeared right. with rainbow flags I and mean, you know what i mean I'm like since when did adidas yeah. give a shit about gay people you know um <laughs> and it, and it just makes me sad cuz I'm, I'm like oh so now gayness like i think i think we're in a real moment where um we see the way that like queerness really can have absolutely nothing to do with like it's really possible to be gay and not um give a shit about other people, you know, like, and, and not really care about, um, some of the most striking forms of violence that are sort of, um, and and iniquity that are sort of structuring the world around us. And I think anyway, (laughs) that very sort of ugly place is where I wrote the, wrote the, um, wrote that epilogue from. And I think that like the less individuated we can think, you know, the more, the more, um, the more connected, I think we'll understand ourselves in relation to each other. And I think that trying to Expose the roots of um, of the way that like individuation um, or kind of um, epistemologies of individuation have also sort of um, pulled different types of like movements for justice or movements um, against oppression away from each other. I think, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. I guess I hope that would be interesting to people. It sounds like at least it was interesting to you. So I'm
0: happy about that. <laughs> yeah, it was to me for sure. Um, so Greta, thank you very much for your time. Just before we go, um, I'd just like to ask you if there's anything else we didn't discuss that you'd like to mention, and what else are you working at the moment, working on at the moment? Um,
1: I think, yeah. I don't <laughs> think there's anything else we didn't um, discuss. And what I'm working on right now. Um, I, my, I'm working on two projects um, but, or book projects, one of which is um, the one I'm working on more is tentatively called, it's either, I'm, I, I've, I've used both titles, but either a queer history of sexual violence or a feminist history of sexual violence. And it's kind of inspired by the work that I didn't do in this first book. Um, one of the things that you see uh, feminist historians in particular do, and um, y- you, you see a lot of um, historians of sexuality that don't treat sexual violence and they'll do this from a sort of ethical standpoint. You know, they'll say like, you know, I'm, I'm doing, I'm talking about bestiality I'm talking about masturbation I'm talking about adultery, fornication, sodomy, whatever, but I'm not going to talk about sexual violence because sexual violence isn't sex. There's something that that, about sexual violence that makes it not proper to like to the sort of realm of sexuality Um, But of course, you know, before at least in the United States, the sort of advent of marital rape laws, I mean, if, if at all, um, you know, sex and violence and sex and sexuality and sexual violence, there was really no functional difference between the two, you know? And I think that if you don't write about the history of sexual violence relative to the history of sexuality, you also cut like huge, huge, huge populations of people outside of the, out of the story of the history of sexuality. I'm thinking especially of black women, but not exclusively black women. Um and so um so yeah so the book is kind of thinking about um how it's a kind of I'm thinking of it as an episodic history and it's a it's a history that goes from the late 18th to the late 20th century um I keep saying that you know everyone else gets to write a weird second book so I'm going to write a weird second book too um <laughs> so that that tries to think about like um like feminist negotiations um with the sort of problem of sexual violence um and how those negotiations legal extra legal cultural etc have sort of influenced um what we understand sexuality to be or not be and in a way the book was really inspired by um <laughs> i i feel like this might be like one of the weirdest things that anyone's ever said about hiltnells but it was it was inspired by the first <laughs> essay in um hiltnells's book white girls um uh, which is called sister peak which i think is just one of the most like masterful essays i've ever read but um but but it, it, he's kind of thinking about the term the, fra- the the term that we now think of as like white feminism. He 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 describes that position as as white girl. Um and you know in in that book for anyone who's familiar with it, um there's all sorts of white girls and white girls don't neither have to be white nor girls. So like you know Eminem is a white girl. Um I'm trying to think. Michael Jackson is a white girl. There's all different white girls. Um. But um, And he, he really thinks of the white girl as like this position um, in the sort of economy of, in the the sort of social economy of desire that's both vulnerable um, because it's sort of sought after. There's a sort of sexuality to it that's sought after and sort of chased. And um, it's sort of like, it, it's both vulnerable, but it's also a position that really understands how to weaponize that vulnerability. And I, and I read that essay. I was just so blown away by it. And I've just been thinking a lot ever since I read it and also before about the phrase white feminism because, A, we use it now, and I think it really it really names something real, you know, it's, but it also I think there's a kind of flatness to it because people, like, I'll hear my students say, like, oh, like, you know, the second wave feminism was white feminism. I'm like, oh, my God. Like Like, there's nothing that feels more <laughs> offensive to me than thinking about, like... I don't know, like all the really important, like anti-prison work that a lot of feminists were doing in that moment, and just like collapsing yeah. into white feminism. You know what I mean? Like, right, you know, I'm right, like, I'm yeah. like, there was some real serious anti-racist work of that era. Um, you know, Audre Lorde is that era, but um, anyway. So, but and weirdly, the book is kind of a genealogy. This this new book I'm working on of white feminism, and it's kind of thinking about how um the recognition, how like how sexual vulnerability was sort of manufactured and asserted and um and 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 came to adhere to um specific groups of women usually white women um not always upper class women but often upper class women um and how that sort of whiteness um uh, that combination of like whiteness and sexual vulnerability was something that could later be weaponized towards towards sort of racist ends there's like a sort of story in the book about the history of whiteness alongside the sort of history of feminism and the history of right. sexuality. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm kind of in an early moment
1: with it right now, but that's that's what I'm working on.
0: Well, that sounds super interesting and uh, let all the weirdness come out, <laughs> please. <laughs> uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, no more. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> uh, Greta, thanks for talking to us today and um, good luck with your book. Thank you so much.